0: Hey, everyone. Genevieve here with a quick heads up that we encountered some recording difficulties during this pair of episodes, so you'll likely notice that Tasha's audio sounds significantly different from the rest of ours. We hope it's not too distracting and promise that we'll sound like ourselves again by the next episodes. Thanks for listening. It's
1: very difficult to keep the line between the
2: past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being we may be through with the past but the past
1: is not through with us welcome back to the next picture show a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release i'm tosh robinson here again with genevieve koski
3: scott tobias thank you phipps
1: in our last episode we revisited cameron crowe's almost famous his autobiographical film about a 15 year old rock critic pulled up to the big league when Rolling Stone sticks him on a tour assignment with a troubled band and a manic pixie band-aid. This week, we're looking at a similar story from a different time and place. Caitlin Moran is a British broadcaster, writer, and humorist whose 2014 novel How to Build a Girl is heavily based on her own life as a teenage music writer in the British Midlands, complete with a huge family, grinding poverty, an enthusiastic sexual awakening, some struggles with her body image, and a dad who saw himself as a great lost rock hero. The film version, directed by Koki Giedroyk, is a perky, slightly over-the-top comedy about reinvention, both through music and through fashion, attitude, and words. Like William and Almost Famous, Joanna Morrigan, played by Booksmart's Beanie Feldstein, is recognized early for her writing talent, and she falls in among older, more cynical male writers in a music magazine, where her writing pays the bills and turns things around for her struggling family. And like William, she falls for a figure in her new music world, rocker John Kite, played by Game of Thrones' Alfie Allen. Like William's crush object, John is supportive and kind, but not really available to Joanna in the way she wants, and her angst underlines a lot of the story. Joanna's story goes in a different direction from William's, but she has to navigate a lot of the same problems and learn a lot of the same lessons. We'll be back to discuss the film right after this.
3: How much longer am I going to have to be here? I need your help. I want to burn. I want to explode. I want to have sexual intercourse. Someone who has a car. What's a car? Stop moping. Try this. They're looking for writers to be a rock critic. I'm Johanna Morrigan. I have an interview for the job. Did you think my writing was good?
1: It's not really us. Not
3: cool. Darling.
2: Rooms like that need girls like you.
1: Come on, let's go. Good God, it's a child catcher.
2: Johanna Morrigan is dead. This is the legendary Dolly
1: Wilde. So what did you guys think about how to build a girl?
3: Just, we did not learn how to build a girl at any, in, uh, <laughs> any point in this film. Yeah. It
1: was illustrative. She is a girl, and she's building herself. Uh, you follow her exact steps. Even her, if her exact steps are extremely idiosyncratic and involve, at one point, uh, making a bikini out of trash bags.
2: <laughs> it's, like weird, it's like weird science. Weird science taught me how to build a girl. Just to do it. Um,
1: that also very idiosyncratic in terms of girl building.
0: I... Really wanted to like this movie a lot more than I did. Uh, I mean, I love Beanie Feldstein, and I think to the extent this movie works, it's uh, a lot because of her. But I think the character of Johanna is really all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. Like she's five, six different characters over the course of this movie, mm-hmm. and the the progression of that character did not really make sense to me. I'm, I'm willing to concede I, I may have overlooked th- some things, but it really felt like I was missing big chunks of this movie in terms of why this character is acting the way she is in, in any given moment. Like I said, I think Beanie Feldstein is great and she does a lot for the character Just through pure enthusiasm And a valiant effort And a British accent um, <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. But Yeah Yeah <laughs> <laughs> And actually, I really liked Albie Allen's uh, character and performance in this kind of more than Johanna at a lot at some points, which is maybe a a problem given that she's the protagonist. But maybe not. Like maybe the point is that she is weird and occasionally unlikable and occasionally cruel in the way that teen girl weirdos absolutely can be. It just I didn't feel like there was a strong enough arc to keep me connected to her as a protagonist throughout this movie.
3: Yeah, I'm gonna say I like Beanie Feldstein a lot too, and I don't think she was good. In this, I don't think she was the right person for this movie at all. I, mm. I, I thought she was s- severely miscast. I mean, starting with that accent, which was not <laughs> not working, and like I know yeah. she just played high school characters really recently, but she just does not read as, as a 15, 16 year old girl. But I think you really kind of pinpoint the biggest problem, which you're right, is she is all over the place. Like there is no character development as such because it it, she goes through such wild shifts uh so suddenly that said, every time I was ready to write this movie off, I think it does something really smart. It would mm-hmm. do something smart that would kind of bring me back on board, and, and like a little subtler and a little unexpected. And it kind of gets enough of the details right to be convincing about what that world must have been like. Because the British music press is sort of its own kind of a uh, uh, strange, um, cruel place. Well, especially and at I,
0: this during this era too. Mm-hmm. Humble
3: brag, but I studied abroad for a year and like yeah. uh, in, the, in the early nineties. <laughs> this 90s is your and, time. This is your time, like, Keith. Yeah, yeah, and I would pick up. Uh, enemy every week uh, 75 75p, I would get it at the uh, uh, the university <laughs> store and and get like a three bean cake and, and sit on the on the quad or whatever and, and, and read uh, NME. <sighs>
1: He was also like desperately in love with Alfie Allen at the time. So
3: like, yes, that, the parallels are significant. Uh, yeah. It was, it was a period they were really into obviously the obvious ones, but also like bands you've never, you've never heard of outside of unless you were there then like smash and these animal men <laughs> bands that were written about every week and then like never, you know, never really did anything. But um as a regular reader, I was kind of impressed by the cruelty and, and the, the cleverness of it all. But I think the smartest thing this movie does is kind of expose that for what it is. Uh, although it's a little simplistic, but I mean, I think I think it's a movie about kind of shedding irony and cleverness for its own sake to figure out like why you were in love with this stuff in the first place. And, and I think that part really works. And I think a lot of supporting performances really work, but mixed feelings about this one.
0: Before you say it, Scott, when this movie was over, I turned to Steve and I went, I bet Scott is going to hate this movie. So (laughs) Uh, so please weigh in. I I can't wait
2: to
1: see if the word twee or quirky
0: comes up. Yeah,
2: I I, I hated this (laughs) (laughs) one. I I, I tried. I really did. And I I kind of, I'm I'm trying to, I mean, first of all, I mean, I had almost a fight or flight response to the opening narration. I was like, this is not good. Wow. Whatever this accent is, this whole setup, this is a rough start. And so I try in a, and I try in retrospect to kind of cling to certain ideas and scenes and notions that have some substance to them. You know, the kind of Midland setting that dad with sort of a ridiculous dream that he's sort of still pursuing. You know, the fact that well, the one the one insight into music journalism that kind of felt right was like how you institutionally support a small handful of bands and then you sort of burn the brush around the, them.
0: Parasites.
2: <laughs> right, the parasites right parasites right i don't know if anybody really explicitly would say such a thing at a, at a place like that but just like the you know and we'll we'll, t- we'll talk about it in relation to almost famous but just there's something so bloodless about this film and, and i never really got a sense that anybody really cared as much about Music, it, it, it was not as a film about music, a persuasive or inspiring film in any way. And the character is all over the place, which to some extent is the point. This is an unformed person uh, who is trying to find her way. And she and when one tack doesn't work, she tries another tack. In a way, it's kind of like the Simpsons episode where Homer becomes a food critic remember like the the arc is the same where he like loves everything and then is told that he needs to be harsher and so he becomes you know notable for all for writing terrible things about every uh, restaurant he reviews I don't know. I just, yeah. I we'll get into it, but it just this thing did, just did not work for me at all. And in the, in the final bit where she's talking to the camera at the end, it's just mm. that's about as bad as it gets for me. I just I hated that so much. I can't even say. <laughs> uh, I just like it's just like okay. Well, let's just sum up the whole movie by telling you right to the camera in this way that felt
3: ingratiating. I am not uh, not a fan uh, that that was a bad bad uh, way to end it, the movie. Yeah. Uh, it's such a weird mix too because it'll get a detail right like I think it's really smart about class and about how you know these a lot of the music writers that she's trying to impress do not have to really work for this at all but at the same time, I've known 90s music writers. None of them look that great in Swimming's <laughs> characters. <laughs> well, I mean, that that is a good point, though. And it
2: justifies kind of her doing this is inventing things but inventing herself and not really the earnest approach doesn't work you know when she tries to file that feature that doesn't play and so she has to reinvent herself and part of that reinvention is based in class and base is based on need uh need to become a writer but also just a need to you know pay the bills and um and so that theoretically would make her you know a more sympathetic and engaging character but i didn't again didn't quite get there
1: I don't love the voiceover. Uh, I very, very rarely like voiceovers in movies. But overall, I would say I probably like this film better than you guys did. And maybe about the best thing I can say in its defense, because it is a pretty flawed movie in a lot of ways, is that it may be aimed at a younger...
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> For, the eye roll the eye roll on her is not right.
0: keith just changed his zoom background to a picture of beanie feldstein as johanna and
1: like looking over his shoulder with weird open mouth and woolly eyes <laughs> as you were saying tasha about the best thing i could say in defense of this movie is like maybe it's aimed at a younger audience than us because i mm. to me a lot of what what you're seeing is inconsistency in the character I see is uh, like a very deliberate attempt to get across that age where you're constantly trying on new ideas about yourself. And for a, a young woman with that kind of personality, that kind of like over the top, brilliant theater kid energy masquerading as it so often does uh, a much more deep seated set of uh, insecurities and fears that that kind of um, chameleonic assurance that like whatever that the next thing is like, all right, now it's a top hat and a uh, bright red dyed hair and fishnets everywhere. Like this is me. This is the new me. This is the exciting me. This is the me everybody's going to love. And maybe 10 minutes later it will be somebody completely different. Like I see her as trying on a whole bunch of different personalities in this film in order to, to fill a, a pretty big gap in herself. And she gets a lot of, like, energy and enthusiasm out of them until the moment they don't work, and then everything collapses and she's miserable. So all that inconsistency of character I just see as uh, an outgrowth of being 15 years old. Now, there are aspects of the characters that she puts on that are really annoying. The whole, like, subservience, I don't know, the, sort of like... The, the co-
0: sex discovery stuff, I hate
1: hate it. <laughs> oh really? I thought the sex discovery oh. stuff was hilarious. Oh no. I, I well, go ahead, continue your talk th- <laughs> the, the, the whole Proceed. weird like sort of like like cockney boot boot black uh persona, but with a, a posh accent that she does, the, you know, oh thank you kindly, sir. I, I found that incredibly grating and weird. But again, maybe kind of realistic for a like a geek of a certain type. Like I have definitely seen people in my sphere like on that kind of weird, over-the-top politeness, and I really like the way Beanie Feldstein, like whenever she's doing that, is also sort of like undermining it by not making eye contact and kind of giggling mm. around it a little bit. Like she, she really does feel whenever she's putting that on, it's a defense mechanism. It's a an avoidant technique uh, to keep her from showing any real emotion. The problem comes, I think, when you have a protagonist that's afraid to show any real emotion, you end up with a very artificial film. Yeah,
0: hearing you say that, Tasha, I'm kind of having some pieces click into place regarding a scene that I I really struggled with near the the beginning of the film in in terms of her character, which is when she goes on TV to read her poem. Mm. And she blows it but in the course of blowing it the the poem she's reading it's very sincere which i think is what we're supposed to take from it but it's also very bad and oh, right yeah. you know and it's and seemingly like purposely so like i don't think we're supposed to think that's good but then what is this telling us about her writing ability and then to immediately follow that up with her barking like a dog <laughs> uh, you know like going going off script and howling it's very strange, and I feel like it confuses the character in terms of, you know, how talented she's supposed to be. Because one of the things I think this movie is smart about is not giving us a whole lot of her writing to the point Scott has made before about uh, not showing great, supposedly great art uh, for fear of it not being great. Yeah, that's um, also
1: a, a big hobby horse of mine in film. Yeah. Mr. <laughs> Holland's opus role. Yes, yeah, yeah yes. we had a whole conversation about this not too yeah. long
0: ago. So the poem definitely confuses that for me, but, you know, kind of hearing you talk about her putting these persona beats on as a protective measure, like, I guess that's how you read her turning into a barking dog (laughs) reaction, you know, after she's kind of, like, laid bare emotionally and fails at it, but it just, it really didn't work for me in, in practice.
1: So I, I think I might have a small advantage here in that I'm a big fan of Caitlin Moran. I've read mm. all of her books. I, I really enjoy specifically her humor writing. And she does tend to be uh, like a little artificial. She makes often like big political arguments. Um, she's like, oh, she is a British newspaper columnist. And she she's the kind of writer who flits back and forth between writing an entire column about uh, fishnet stockings and how ridiculous they are and writing about like what's going on in, in parliament and how it's uh, an insane policy for the nation for the following reasons. And her arguments are often very glib and facile and often mm-hmm. built on uh, kind of like hilariously shallow metaphors or, or connections But she's a very, very funny writer. And she is, she's just a very creative writer. She's the kind of person who will come up with a ridiculous, elaborate metaphor for something. That kind of makes you say, well, okay, I certainly haven't seen it in that light. So I am sort of filtering all of this through a belief that like at at the end, when she hands her work to Emma Thompson, and Emma Thompson says, we were passing this around the newspaper, uh, Mm -hmm. like, like it was candy, we were all laughing at it. I can believe that like I can having read Moran's writing, I can believe that it came across as surprising, um, even to a bunch of like, like dated newspaper people. But in the movie, whereas I definitely still think it was the right call to not have Emma Thompson like reading, here's the unbelievably hilarious thing you wrote, uh, because it probably wouldn't play that way at all. I can also see how that would come across as like a little facile and hard to buy in the movie, like this very clearly like elder stateswoman of a journalist uh, saying, you're the funniest thing we've ever read. We want to give you a permanent column forever. Isn't that great? comes across as it's one of the many things that the movie does just maybe a little too big and bright in order to make the point but without necessarily making it land in any like relatable way okay
0: but is the dog poem supposed to be good
1: no (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so so why was she selected as a winner to begin yeah i don't uh, understand i i honestly took that as just an indication that this was one of those incredibly banal um public tv kind of things and you know that they had the choice of perhaps dozens of uh terrible poems written by uh dull students and somewhere along the way somebody thought this a uh, girl's poem about her dog maybe that person whoever selected it had a dog uh <laughs> the poem that wins the poem that we hear a snippet of before her isn't good either i I just took this as probably a very banal tv show featuring a lot of very banal like local arts
3: all the kids are watching it though Mm -hmm. at our school
1: (laughs) yeah apparently well there's only like
3: four channels on on uh, british television at this point yeah that's fair
1: also very likely that one of them saw it and then we're just got around yeah well, I don't think I, I mean, we, we could certainly talk a lot more about how to build a girl. But really, we brought this in because it's got so many surprising small connections with Almost Famous. I mean, the, it almost reads like a deliberate cover band version of Almost Famous. So I think we should probably just go ahead and jump right into the connections and, and talk about it in relation to this other film that's doing so many of the same things. So uh, we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Almost Famous and How to Build a Girl. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. So usually with connections, we try to maybe give everybody one matchup to spearhead because generally we're looking at a couple of uh, like big thematic connections or big execution connections because we're, we're talking about like the same director at different points of their life. Uh, in this case, it's just like a point by point. There are so many little things this, this film has in common. Uh, both of these characters come from families that are in some ways holding them back and in some ways very needy about them. Both of these films explore the lavish rock star lifestyle and how appealing it is to people on the outside. Both explore the journalistic dichotomy between being an artist and writing about an artist. Both of them are about young people creating their identities, figuring out who they are and redefining themselves. Both of them are about the dichotomy between uh, the the music and how much people love it and the, the flawed people who actually create it and what's wrong with them. Both of these are Films about music within the story and how it's used and how it's compelling to the characters. Both of these films have big, important scenes about losing your virginity. Both Take a breath. Ha- take a drink of water, Tasha. <laughs> <laughs> you were the one that suggested this model of uh, whipping through them all. Both of them have uh, clouds of, of non-supportive external journalists who... Help the, the protagonist into their career uh, and then emotionally reject them in a way that they have to, to come back from. Both of these characters have uh, sympathetic siblings that support them through their lives. And uh, finally, we can just kind of talk about the contrast between the, the 70s and 90s milieu, 70s and 90s music, and the American and British cities. So uh, Genevieve suggested that I just do a whip through <laughs> of all of these. These all right. are because
2: well, I know thanks. we're not going to get through all of these. <laughs> so I don't want depra- to just. <laughs>
0: I just don't want to deprive our listeners of all of these connections that I know we will not be able to unpack in full. So well,
1: what do you want to unpack? Like what, what on this lengthy list uh interests you?
2: I think I'd wanna start with comparing and contrasting our protagonists here. Um uh and I guess that would put us somewhere in the identity and self-creation connection. The William and Almost Famous and Johanna and How to Build a Girl. And the thing I couldn't get past Is that initial point of engagement? I mean, William is precocious, not just because he's a talented writer, but because he comes to the table with a genuine enthusiasm for music. I mean, that is, he is already completely on board. He knows about, you know, some band's second and third record. I mean, you know, he he can talk to Lester Bangs and not embarrass himself. But with Johanna, it's all about sort of fake it till you make it it's kind of the review she submits to a rock magazine is of annie the annie soundtrack and she has to kind of by the seat of her pants discover things that she likes like manic street preachers that's kind of like a big musical moment for her just as just as for william watching Stillwater at the side of the stage is a big musical moment for him and kind of revelatory moment so they they share that in common but it was so much harder for me and, and this is one where I really feel like I need to kind of get a detachment away from the story the personal detachment to embrace Johanna for that reason because it was just she comes to the table as is completely a sort of a poser and not somebody who has a genuine love for music and criticism and all the things that go with it it's just a raw desire to be something to be a writer
0: exactly it's it's writing it's any sort of writing like exactly you know and there's that early scene of her like turning in like a 36 page paper (laughs) and it sounds like this is probably connected to uh caitlin moran based on on uh tasha's description as someone who just compuls has to compulsively write uh whatever the format and whatever the subject matter so this subject matter which it should be noted is something her brother who she shares a room with cares very deeply about he he has a music scene and her father cares very deeply about for more selfish reasons but is also clearly very engaged in in music as a form so it's just sort of a a new venue for her to exercise her art in and one in which she is accepted but it's also to connect it to to William or to contrast with William because she doesn't have that strong connection to the things she's writing about, she's much quicker to sort of succumb to the to the dark side of it, you know, and because she doesn't you know, Manic Street Preachers accepted doesn't have that emotional connection to her material that William does and that kind of keeps him a little more centered and able to see the divide between, to cite another connection here, the uh, the music and the musician.
3: Yeah, on the one hand, I appreciate that that they didn't, they were honest about that character, you know, not having experience and not having knowledge about it. But on the other hand, it it really kind of enforced some Pretty hurtful stereotypes about female this rock movie, journalists. This movie you know?
0: hate crit- hates critics in general. Yeah, well, critics think. in general, and, and like,
3: <laughs> and she's the only example we have of a, of a woman writing in the field, if I'm not mistaken, right?
0: I think so. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, which is probably true to true to the way it was, but also like, if this is the only example, that's not that's not a great depiction of, of I mean, There are very many uh, talented uh, female music writers, and uh, to have her be the only one in the film is uh, feels a little off.
1: So we don't really see much of the critical world outside of her publication, though. I mean, when she graduates up to newspapers, she does immediately run into a female writer who seems very sophisticated and, and sure of herself. It's just a different environment. And I think that that is pretty accurate in terms of the rock critic game especially in the 90s and and even earlier, being primarily a male thing, much as film criticism then and earlier was was primarily a male thing. I agree that this really taps pretty hard into some stereotypes about uh, men and women as critics, as fans, as writers, but I think it's a little smarter than that about kind of dissecting the degree to which male critics are seen as like compulsive Collectors, compulsive uh, annotators who are deeply seated in mm-hmm. the trivia and the fundamentals of whatever the art is, and women are seen as more more enthusiasts. I don't think that this movie necessarily criticizes that. I, I in fact, I think that she takes them to task for it. The same kind of dichotomy that you see between uh, male fans and female fans in animation, in in anime, in movie fandom, in Star Wars fandom. Uh, Pretty much anything that appeals to younger people, where the men are much more likely to be gatekeepers accusing women of being fake fangirls. I'm seeing aspects of that here, and I think it's a little smarter than you're giving it credit for. I also think we just have to continually return to the fact that she's 15 and she's figuring out who she is. Mm. I, I did... mean, she's 16 and three quarters. Ah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> she's 16 and she's figuring out who she is. I found that moment where she experiences her first rock show and immediately starts to wax poetic about it relatively compelling. I mean, we know that she grew up poor. That she's never been to a rock show, that her exposure to music has mostly been uh, top of the pops on TV, that her brother has a small handful of records and literally has a guard system, a trap set up so she can't listen to them. I think it's kind of fun that we get to see her discovering this music and then like throwing herself violently into it, even if it doesn't make her the smartest or best critic. Like this is an origin story. We also get to see Williams' origin story. It's just, it's in his case, it's being handed this music by a woman who's curated it for him carefully and who knows a lot more about it than he does, which I think is also an interesting touch.
0: Yeah, that's true. I think how to build a girl's compressed timeline maybe works against it a fair bit here because, like, this whole thing takes place over a few months, if that. Like, like I think there's actually a line about it being like it's only been like two and a half months <laughs> or, or or something like that. And I think the film is trying to make a joke of that to a certain extent by drawing attention to it. But it also sort of highlights that she became this super fan of music and started writing about it professionally in the span of like a couple weeks, you know, and there is so there certainly is something to say about the gatekeeping aspect of like, you have to you have to really know something to be able to, to write about it. But you have to balance that with this is her first ever rock show and we never see her go to, well, we we see her go to more in, in a montage. But again, there's like a magical realism element to this film that I think allows it to gloss over that if you're willing to give it the benefit of the doubt, but... I don't know how willing I am to do that in this case.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It's It's a very compressed timeline, both in terms of, of her personal two and a half months timeline and in terms of rushing through this much character action over the course of uh, less than two hours. Uh, the whole film does seem very rushed and, and sh- it shorthands an awful lot of stuff that naturally stretched out at more length and with more believability in the novel.
0: And in Almost Famous, I mean, we meet William when he's a little boy, you know, like, I mean, as far as origin stories go, it's a lot more drawn out and detailed.
1: But for what it's worth, William seems fairly secure in his identity from the start. I I feel like we see him move through a few stages of growing up just in terms of like seeing things that he's never seen before and experiencing the world as a little larger and like wondering at a whole lot of things, just like taking in the wonder of, oh my gosh, I'm backstage at a rock show, like like watching it all happen. But he's still very fundamentally the same person he is at the beginning and at the end, maybe not at the beginning when he's 11, but at the point where he starts his criticism career and where the movie ends. Now, granted it all takes place over the course of what a week or two, So you wouldn't expect huge character movement, but I think it does make it a lot more relatable in a way because we're not being asked to accept these huge changes of personality.
2: I think he evolves as much as he needs to. I mean, as you say, he's the same guy. I think he has learned a lot on this. I mean, this is his first, crack at this and uh, on and so many on every possible level and it changes him and he and he's disillusioned in certain ways and and seduced in other ways and comes back has gone through something i mean it is a, it's a, they're both coming of age movies he, so he has you know in order to qualify as that he, he have to kind of come out the other side as, as a somewhat changed person and i think that almost famous keeps track of those changes better it's much more proportional about uh, about how those changes can kind of take place it's cohesive uh, how the bill, bill girl is very all over the place which Again. i guess is the point but it's still it's still not satisfying
1: yeah agreed I mean, we could probably spend another twenty minutes just on the difference between protagonists, but uh, what else do we want to hit from this list?
0: I mean, given how much uh, we talked about Frances McDormand as uh, William's mom in, in the first half, I don't think we should touch on the family. And uh, well, we, I guess we've already have gone into the origin story a little, so uh, this is a maybe a, a way to transition <laughs> there. But I mean, I did uh, to give uh, How to Build a Girl some credit. I, I did like Patty Considine's. Uh, performance as her father uh, it was just the right amount of sad versus funny for that role I feel and I already spoke about her dad and brother kind of providing the, the musical basis of, you know, her transformation. But um, I'm not so keen on the portrayal of her mother, especially given how she factors into the the film's emotional climax. We're given information at the beginning about how her mom has kind of become a non-entity since having twins at age I don't know. 38, 30, I think. 38. Yeah. And that makes sense as a character beat, but it also winds up backgrounding that character in the movie a lot. And we do get a few glimpses of her. And and when we do, I was like, I'd, I'd like to know more about this mom, you know, and about their relationship, which is indicated to be an important emotional component of this, but it doesn't really play out uh, in, in a meaningful way until that sort of ending scene well, it doesn't play out in a meaningful way in that ending scene because of the kind of short shrift the rest of the film gives her compared, again, to how much Frances McDormand gets to do in Almost Famous and how much you can see that character's influence on her son.
1: I think one thing that's interesting to note as a difference between the book version and the film version um, and as a difference between the real life and the film version is in the movie she's got four siblings and in part that's because her mom just had twins in the book, and I, I believe in real life, it's it's eight. Uh, yeah. I can't remember. I, eight, I saw that too. Eight, eight yeah, when I yeah, doing reading, eight, <laughs> kids total. But it's a very very big family, and like the book really emphasizes the degree to which I mean she's very clearly got a case of middle child syndrome. One of the reasons she's struggling for I- her identity is like nobody really gets that much parent time. Nobody really mm-hmm. gets that much oversight. They're all kind of like running around on their own little schemes, trying to scrap together enough money to have you know, any fun, any privileges, any luxuries whatsoever. So kind of the absence of the parents in that version of the story is a lot more egregious. I think William has a uh, single child syndrome, you know, it, even though he has a sister, she's very absent and he very much comes across as that he really wants to please his mom. He's very bright and precocious. He's had a great deal of attention and uh, and care and drive lashed onto him uh, from from early childhood and he's kind of got that upbeat striver version of a single child thing going on whereas uh, joanna's just like struggling to stand out and it feels like maybe she was designed for struggling to stand out against a family of eight which she no longer has
2: it does give her a chance to sort of bond with her father i mean i guess this is an avenue for that to connect to this one thing that he uh, cares a lot about i really do i like the patty Considine. Performance. He's an actor. I I always like to see pop up here and there, and uh, that character sort of reinforces both the sort of Midlands lower class setting, and then and a the working class setting, and um, and also just the like this desire on his part, and then on Joanna's part to be to strive for something, to strive for some way to. Transcend the situation they're in. I mean, it's it's not over for him. It's sad, you know. I mean, he's the type of person who who should should have given up a long time ago, but he's still kind of going after it. And I uh, yeah, you know, I think that was a nice little character and uh and then there's, there's the scene where he says what's wrong with your accent what happened to- <laughs> uh, no he doesn't say that but um you know, <laughs> it's all fucked up but i don't know what happened to it um <laughs> i thought where, did you grow up somewhere else so yeah anyway it's a nice character i think and and it, and it kind of uh that was the one kind of the family one family element and how to build a all the connected with me and the brother's not a bad character either but uh but again nothing everything feels a little bit thin with this movie it it, it almost seems. Like it should be a longer. It should should be we need a, the untitled a, cut of exactly, exactly. Give us another
0: forty minutes, which, which <laughs> I is her talking to the characters on the wall. Yeah,
3: that oh, was no. I, I didn't. I didn't love that touch. I, I got to say. Although they had found some very talented people to play the various famous people that she she talked to on her wall.
1: Yeah, one thing we didn't put in uh, under this long list of connections is just both of these films feature. Cameos really heavily. And I use that as a transition point out of uh, talking about almost famous. So maybe we should talk about a little here. Among other things, one of the photos, the talking photos on Joanna's wall is, is the Bronte sisters. And one of those Bronte sisters is apparently the director's sister.
0: Yeah, uh, Mel Giedroyk, who is one of the two original hosts of uh, Great British Bake Off, uh, along with Sue... Oh, I'm sorry, Sue, I forgot Perkins, your last name. Perkins, I think? Yes, yes, Sue Perkins, thank you. Uh, um, how do I know that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I did not recognize them. This is an IMDb discovery, but, uh, you know, it's a, a nice little nod, especially finding out that uh, Mel is the director's sister, so... That's cool. And it was very nice to see Sharon Horgan, who I like a lot, as Jo March. But it kind of drove me crazy that she was Joe March and not Louisa May Alcott when everyone else on that wall were, yeah, that were, were, were were real people. And and Johanna clearly has a lot of affection for Joe March as a character. She does the whole selling her hair thing, which I thought was actually quite funny. Oh, that really? being the, the, the ultimate sacrifice. <laughs> just I mean, that just that feels like such a, a teen girl kind of fixation to be like, yes, yeah, selling your hair is the ultimate sacrifice. (laughs) and and seeing that through
1: that see that's really interesting if anything i would have held that up as something i would thought that you would hate because it's such a i mean as he as he does say to her during that apology like this is about you not me like her her big act of atonement is to call various rock stars up to apologize for the things that she said about them but she doesn't let them she doesn't let them talk. She talks over them. She interrupts them. She says, I'm sorry. And then she hangs up on them. And it's, it's a very all about her apology that doesn't actually do anything to, to counteract the harm she's done. And then her hacking off her hair in what seems like a direct lift from little women. Like she, it feels to me like she's reaching for uh, like Joe level sympathy. She's reaching for, for Joe level sacrifice. But his entire reaction is, you're giving me a chunk of your hair? And she's like, yeah, it's a big, dramatic, important gesture. And he's like, "Um,
0: I mean, I, I, it just worked for me as a comedic beat. I, I definitely see what you're saying about it uh, being obnoxious on, on a character level. But to my point, Sharon Horgan should have been Louisa May Alcott, no, not Nacho March. <laughs> but because like it makes sense that she would... Idolize Joe slash Louisa May Alcott as a sort of uh, mercenary, someone who has a sort of mercenary approach to writing, which is sort of famously what uh, motivated uh, Louisa May Alcott and, and bled into the character of Joe March.
3: So I think one connection we haven't really uh, – I'm not sure it's even on the list, but I, I appreciate how both films kind of had human-sized rock stars, too, where mm-hmm. Almost Famous had, like, these characters who were very vulnerable and, and needy. And in this one, uh, Alfie Allen is not, like, this excessive, you know, r- you know, rock god or anything. Even It doesn't even really style itself as such. I, I read an interview with Moran where he, she said, like, She wanted to create a character who was more like people that she knew, like in in Teenage Fan Club and Boo Radleys, who were just kind of like these smart, working class people who were also really good musicians. And I I appreciate that aspect of it. I I like that performance as well. But I I think it's kind of interesting that both films, when trying to get up close and personal as, as to what it means to be close to rock stars ultimately kind of arrive arrive at the same conclusion it's like it's it's banal but it's like stars are just like us you know
1: yeah I I mean I'd like to dig a little more into John Kite's character we talked a lot both of these films kind of have the unattainable love interest that the protagonist is after and I think How to Build a Girl maybe engages a little more just with the the problem of Uh, This kid is very underage and you really should not be messing Mm -hmm. with her. It's not cute. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. that relationship is not sweet and it's not cute. Like you you could go to jail and she's not ready. I mean, she's still creating herself, but Alfie Allen's uh, version of John Kite like does feel like a rock star. Who's he, he feels a million years old. He feels like he's been through the fame ringer and come out on the other side like more of a person, like more of a person sized uh, individual who's kind of familiar with media, but like still has room for, for people and for friendliness and for creativity in his life. I, there's just something I really like about that first scene where he kind of turns her down for the interview and then ends up taking her to a hotel. And you feel like there's something skanky going on there. You feel like he's going to take advantage of her. And that's not what he's about. It's, I don't think it's even really gone through his head. It's kind of a reversal of, of what you expect of that scene, but it's also just kind of an indication that, like, he, I don't know that he's normal people like you and me, but he's definitely, like, a human being that is actually seeing her as a human being instead of as a disposable groupie type.
3: The other thing is I, th- I thought um, his song was pretty good. It was it's better than Fever Dog anyway. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> was it really Alfie Allen? Who did their homework? Was oh. it really him singing? Do we know? Oh, I don't know. I did not do homework on that. I can
3: research that in the background while we continue this conversation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the film does need that. In the in the in the music realm, uh, we don't encounter uh, many authentic souls in this film, uh, including her, because she's so she's so undefined. So it is kind of important that we have that ballast of uh, of, a, of a character like that i mean it's 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 a nice turn and very different from uh the character he plays on game of thrones <laughs>
3: <laughs> very true
1: for one thing he probably has intact <laughs> <laughs> Well
0: we don't know that and neither does johanna and that's why we like him <laughs> not, not like tony played by Frank Delane, also known as Tom Riddle from uh, the Harry Potter movies. Mm. <laughs> it took me a, a lot of, uh, it took me way too long to place him when I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good cast, Frank, casting for that smarmy,
1: or to use Tasha's word, skanky character. <laughs> yeah, speaking of people that it, uh, it took far too long to place, I didn't realize um, until the credits rolled that uh, the version of Liz Taylor that's on uh, Joanna's wall, is yeah. played by Lily yeah. Allen. Who is uh, both a rock star in her own right and Alfie? Allen's yeah, sister I just,
3: re- I just two. felt to, to, oh to, to rush in with, to report that news that I just discovered. But oh, Natasha you didn't know that? Uh, he's, no, uh, I didn't know. He,
0: he's who the song her song Alfie is about.
3: Oh.
0: Maybe I'll maybe I'll make Alfie the outro oh. music for this episode. Oh. Yeah,
1: definitely make Alfie the outro <laughs> music because uh, that song is uh, a hilarious burn.
2: Oh my gosh!
1: And it, it's been it's been really funny to sort of see him uh, like blossom as a successful actor performer. Uh, person out in the world after that song gave us gave the entire world the impression of him as a a stoned little (laughs) week well in the interest of getting to that outro music as quickly as possible uh, we're going to transition out of this Almost Famous is on DVD and Blu-ray and can be rented online through the usual services How to Build a Girl is available for rental or purchase through those same services we'll be right back with your next picture show It's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, if you want to kick us off, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I recently caught up
0: with the film Sella in the Spades, which is the directorial debut of Tyreisha Poe that recently hit Prime Video. Uh, and I found myself wishing that we hadn't already covered Ryan Johnson's Brick on this podcast because it would make an amazing pairing with that film. Uh, like Brick, the film uses high school, in this case an elite Pennsylvania boarding school, to stage a more adult genre oriented crime tale, though Sella takes its cues less from noir specifically and more from mobster stories more generally. That's just one of many other reference points in the mix. I'd also throw in Mean Girls, Cruel Intentions, All About Eve, and even a little bit in its visual and emotional tone of Anna Rose, Homeless, The Fitz, uh, which makes sense given that Poe was apparently a still photographer on that last film, which I didn't realize until uh, after I had already made that association while watching it. As that uh, melange of references probably indicates, it's a fairly idiosyncratic film, uh, though it doesn't appear that way at first as opening narration lays out the conceit of the five factions at the school that together oversee and facilitate all the different kinds of vice that take place within its walls. Uh, there's a bigger story and narrative tension regarding those factions that unfolds in the background, but the main focus is on Sella, played by Lovie Simone, who is the current leader of the faction known as the Spades, which oversees the procurement and distribution of all illicit substances on campus. Cela's uh, a senior and as such is concerned both with her legacy and the Spades' future without her. Uh, Cue the arrival of Paloma, played by Celeste O'Connor, who at first seems like Sella's perfect protege, but over the course of the school year, the relationship between them, along with Maxie, Sella's right-hand man, played by Jarrell Jerome, uh, grows more tense and complex." It's a strange, almost boundaryless movie in a lot of ways, with unusual interludes indebted to spoken word poetry, uh, and a narrative that kind of spins out into the ether, and the cloistered world of the boarding school is largely devoid of any cultural or technological markers tying it to a specific time period or larger external story. But it's still really interesting. It's an imperfect movie, but a fascinating one, and a really strong statement for a first-time director, which, again... Natural comparison point to Brick. So, um, yeah, sell in the Spades. It's on Amazon Prime for subscribers. And uh, give it a look. Uh, Scott, what about you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've heard good things about that one, but I uh, haven't seen it. So maybe I'll give it a shot. <laughs> I wanted to... I've been kind of steering into the <laughs> swerve quarantine-wise. And uh, so I wanted to recommend a film I rewatched again recently called It's a Disaster. Um, and this is a independent comedy slash farce uh, about experiencing the apocalypse at home uh specifically during a sunday couples brunch <laughs> uh, and oh it, i'm
0: just remembering this movie i would forgotten the title but yes. yeah no
2: it's <laughs> it's really funny and it's got like david spade and and mm-hmm. julia styles and america ferrera and a really good cast and you know it's basically there are they're, they're all, you know it's eight of them are, uh, gathered for uh, a this did you couples say david brunch.
0: spade is it did is it i david oh no, no. Cross? D- david cross yeah,
2: yeah. Ooh, did i say david spade yeah david cross who's amazing because <laughs> i, I mean, was this talking is,
0: about seller and the spades okay <laughs> sorry no this has
2: got david cross and, and, and i think i think his best like film performance he's incredible in it but it's an extremely clever film that's like that that starts with the, this idea of like okay there's this kind of dirty bomb that happens, you know, while they're just hanging around. Uh, they, they don't witness it happening. Uh, it shuts, you know, they, they, they learn about it in a very secondhand way uh, because, you know, all of their, the internet, the t- television, everything's been shut off. And, uh, you know, they, they, they learn about it and they sort of duct tape themselves in. But, but ultimately, you know, the radiation levels are going to get to a point where, where they're probably not going to survive more than a few hours. So the movie is kind of speculating, like how would people like that, uh, who were just talking about you know vegan stew, uh, spend the, 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 these last few hours? And and uh, you know, and one of the things they they don't do is let go of their petty grievances. <laughs> this one couple that's, that's supposed to make ten. There's really ten of them there. There's eight of them there. There's, there's another couple that, that is uh, supposed to be there, but they're always late every single every single time and they, and so of course they show up late again but they show up and they're in terrible shape they've been hit by all of this radiation they want in the house and you know Julia Stiles and everybody else is like no we can't let them let them in they're they're done for and they're going to bring all this all these toxins into our house and and Julia Stiles' character is like maybe you should learn to show up on time <laughs> <laughs> it's it's got that kind of it's that kind of movie it's got that kind of droll humor um it just it strikes a really just a perfect tone it has a really wonderful you know inconclusive Ending and uh, and some really nice performances by you know actors that you don't that maybe don't al- always get you know enough time to act uh, as much as they do and into play these sorts of characters. I had a great time with it. I think it's a lot of fun. It's like ninety minutes long. It's more much more of a farce than your typical indie comedy, and, um, and I think it's really underrated and under underseen. Uh, so it's on Hulu now, and uh, yeah, I recommend checking it out.
0: I've, I'd seen it before, but like I said, I'd, I'd kind of completely forgotten about it until you you brought it up now. So I'm I'm glad you did because I, I recall liking it quite a bit as well so yeah maybe I'll one. maybe I'll force it on someone uh, in my house uh, this week <laughs> yeah it's it's, it's
2: fun <laughs> Keith what about you
3: it's kind of funny you bring that up because that's that's kind of a, a list of like movies from like the last ten years I kind of mean to get to and never got to so thanks for a reminder it's kind of what my wife and I've been doing for non-required viewing we caught up with uh, some films from the last ten years that we meant to watch that so we finally did we watched uh, Morning Glory. Uh, Scott, you remember that one? I remember yeah, like, oh, I, I do. That. I do. It's not it was, bad.
2: It's it a charming bad.
3: film. We yeah. watched in, in a world the the Lake Bell movie, which uh, was which yes. was pretty good. It was yeah. fine. But for I'll use my my time here to affirm uh, some past your next picture show recommendations from others because I was writing a big piece from on Mark Ruffalo for The Ringer. Uh, which led me to watch two past selections from others, uh, which were Dark Waters, the Todd Haynes film from last year that got uh, a little mm-hmm. under 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 respected. Uh, I know Scott was a big fan, and, and yeah, I totally get it. I think it it kind of starts as like this ecological horror film, and it, and it ends with like this, you know, it ends as sort of this film about how much work and sacrifice it takes to. Uh, affect even incremental change over the course of many years, but I mean Ruffalo is great at it. You, you get a little bit of that Haynes like atmosphere from from Safe, which we talked about recently. And uh, no, I thought it was really good. I was I was I was happy to catch up with that. The other one I caught up with was, was uh, uh, in the Cut, which I forget. Did you recommend that one too, Scott? Or I did. Uh...
2: I did because I'd seen it again and, and thought like, holy crap! I kind of missed the point at the time, and plenty yeah. other critics did. And it's I kind mean... of it's pretty startling and it touches a fan too
3: yeah ta- yeah i remember you and tasha talking about it and, and like um i was happy to catch up with it i did not see it at the time and seeing it removed from the genre it was kind of uh, riffing off of, I think it actually mm-hmm. kind of helps. It kind of, yes. it, it feels like its own strange, uh, weird film. But like this, this the atmosphere, like the the sort of uh, post, uh, not long after nine eleven, New York, uh, where everything is uh, as as you and Tasha pointed out, is just like filled with sexual threat. Um, it's a, I think it's a remarkable movie. I'd, I'd really recommend people catching up with it.
2: Yeah, and Ruffalo's, but the Ruffalo's character is such a cliche though. Like that character of like the edgy cop who may or may not be the oh, killer, I, and I he's really kind of sexy and like he is good. I, but, I, I think it, but he's it is, very it's a trope well suited that they, to that, that he, though because
3: yeah. yeah, but he's so well suited to someone who's like you know, I mean, it's kind of like what he's done so well since uh, you can count on me, where it's like this like friendly surface that you don't really know what's underneath it. And, you know, he's kind of like someone who wears his shortcomings on his sleeve. Uh, but there's more to even, even to it than that. You know, I, I think he's a really good actor. And, and that was, uh, I think yeah, he, was, for sure. he does stuff with that character that you wouldn't necessarily get from another performer. Uh, tasha how about you
1: well i'm actually going to recommend uh, a few things that are none of them movies and all of them reading assignments <laughs> classic tasha um, your next picture show move <laughs> yeah pretty much i i've been watching very little these days uh work is, is just constantly kicking my ass and we've got a giant project coming up um that i will perhaps get into on a future oh. episode but for the moment so the Rolling Stone piece that I talked about a lot in the intro here, I think is just really dynamic and interesting reading. It was published in the year 2000 when Almost Famous came out, and it's expressly about Cameron Crowe and uh, the, the truth behind Almost Famous. And among other things, they uh, <laughs> they let some people who were in the movie, most notably Ben Fong Torres, uh, the, the editor of Rolling Stone at the time talk about his experience with Cameron Crowe and kind of what his truth was in the movie and how he understands how he's portrayed and how the, the rest of the Rolling Stone crew is portrayed in the movie is sort of necessary for the narrative of the movie but he also finds it laughable he's like we would we would never prioritize what a subject said over the writer's experience and the writer was recording that entire time. We would have taken all of those tapes to the band and confronted them with the fact that they were lying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a, a little more support for journalism uh, than actually seen in the movie. But the the article is just it's full of details like that, full of kind of like insider information about uh, what the truth was in uh, Cameron Crowe's life and where all of these things originally came from. It's just it's incisive. It's kind of funny. It's very detailed. You can find it at the Rolling. Stone website. It's called A Boy's Life in Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. The other thing that just immediately came to mind re-watching How to Build a Girl was an essay in one of Caitlin Moran's books. Your mileage is definitely going to vary on Caitlin Moran and, and whether you appreciate her. I find her both hilariously funny and, and very insightful, most specifically about uh, women and feminism and issues that women face in society, um, maybe a little less so about politics, but at least she's funny about politics, which is very, very hard to do. Uh, there is a piece in one of her books um, called Moranifesto, or Moranifesto Mar- is the name of the hmm. book, the piece itself is called, forgive me, The Fermius Cumberbatch. And it's a profile of Benedict Cumberbatch that really feels like it could have been written by uh, by uh Joanna from How to Build a Girl. Much more so Joanna than Dolly Wilde. It's uh, kind of an over-the-top fandom piece. But all of her hanging out with John Kite in this movie, that's pretty much exactly what she did, what Caitlin Moran did with Benedict Cumberbatch. She went to his house and hung out and they drank and he was... Uh, silly and and friendly and uh, told her all kinds of uh, intimate and interesting stuff. And it feels like really let his guard down uh, because she was a, like a giggling girl and a personal fan. And it just, it doesn't feel like any of the other profiles you're going to read in, you know, your big serious like GQ or New Yorker style magazines. It feels artificial in a way but also intimate in a way a lot of the things in how to build a girl do and i i found it tremendously tremendously fun reading there's a lot of uh, fun things in moranifesto which is a collection of journalistic pieces and, and essays and newspaper columns and uh, bits and bobs here and there but the book that really sold me on caitlin moran is called how to be a woman uh it is unrelated to How to Build a Girl, but definitely the title was designed to remind people of this other book of hers. How to Build a Girl, I think, is a fun novel, but How to Be a Woman is, again, a series of essays about women in society, women in all different kinds of walks of life. And again, it's just very funny. It's it's barbed. It's kind of angry, but in a, I'm not going to say harmless way, but a digestible way. She just has a very distinctive voice that I like an awful lot. So I think regardless of whether you actually like uh, Dolly Wilde as a character or Joanna as a character or How to Build a Girl as a story, I would still highly recommend Caitlin Moran's writing.
0: It sounds like something I would like to check out and i think it will i'm i've been in a uh like a memoir book of essays space lately like i feel like i can't track a narrative over the course of a whole book so so essays sounds very appealing right now
1: yeah these tend to be uh very short and punchy you know because they were designed as newspaper columns Mm -hmm. um short punchy digestible to the point and uh not going to challenge your ability to focus during this difficult time. (laughs) Well, well, thank God for that. Well, thank you all for the recommendations. And hopefully these things will keep people occupied just a little longer during lockdown.
2: A little. (laughs) I think maybe we could have lots and lots and lots of recommendations for people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out June 2nd and 9th. Keith, what is coming up next?
3: For our next episodes, we'll be discussing two films that would not be possible without the macabre fiction of Shirley Jackson. First up is The Haunting, a 1963 adaptation of Jackson's novel The Haunting of Hill House, directed by Robert Wise and starring Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, and Russ Tamblyn. Famed for its use of crowded interiors and an eerie sound design to create a claustrophobic atmosphere, it might have been a good pairing for the new film by Madeline's Madeline director, Josephine Decker, even without the Jackson connection. Decker surely adapts a 2014 novel by Sarah Gubbins that imagines a tense year at the home Jackson shared with her husband, literary critic Stanley Edgar Hyman, after they take in an up-and-coming academic and his pregnant wife. We hope you'll join us.
1: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Almost Famous, how to Build a Girl, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773 234 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find it these days? Genevieve?
0: I am the WD TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott?
2: Uh, I'm on Twitter at Scott Tobias, and you can find uh, my work in uh, New York Times, uh, Washington Post, uh, Vulture, The Ringer, and The Guardian. Keith, what about you?
3: Uh, I, you can find me on Twitter at KFIP3000. I'm a freelance writer. You can find me at places like The Ringer, Vulture, Fangoria, Mel Magazine, a uh, bunch of other places. Check me out on Twitter. You can f- figure out where I'm writing. Uh, Tasha, how about you?
1: I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at NextPicturePod, and via Facebook at Facebook.com slash NextPictureShow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at Patreon.com slash NextPictureShow. If you haven't subscribed to this show on Apple Podcasts already, we would sure appreciate it if you did. We are redefining our characters and figuring out who we are <laughs> week by week. And the only possible way for us to define who we're going to be next is to see what you guys value. So we, uh, we look to your ratings and reviews. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners, keep the show going, and decide how much of our hair to cut off this week. <laughs> thanks to Jan the Snake Jakes, for his assistance in producing this podcast. And thanks to Jim Marcus for playing our guest reporter, Alex, on the first half of this week's show. Jim is a Chicago comedy writer and game designer. He's also the creator of the Stage Fright podcast, where he plays a similar character. You can find his comedy audio drama Stage Fright on your podcatcher of choice, and you can find his work in general at writingduels.com. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film-spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.